This is The Law School Show. Discovering the person behind the resume. Bringing you their stories and their tips on how to succeed in your legal career. Catch it all here, right now, on The Law School Show. Hi, and welcome to another episode of The Law School Show. My name is Rebecca, and I will be your host for this episode. Our guest today is Sunil Gurmukh, a human rights lawyer at the Ontario Human Rights Commission. He will be speaking with me today about his career as a human rights lawyer and about his current partnership with Western Law School on the Hidden Racial Profiling Project. So welcome, Sunil, and thank you for being with us today. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So I'd like to start right at the very beginning by asking you why law? What made you decide to go to law school? Sure. Well, before I do that, I'd like to acknowledge Toronto, where I'm standing right now, as a sacred gathering place for many Indigenous people of Turtle Island. I'd like to recognize the long history of First Nations, Métis, and Inuit peoples in Canada and show respect today to the Mississaugas of the New Credit. And thank you, Rebecca, and the Law School Show for having me. Really excited to be on the podcast since I have a face for podcasts and radio. So... Why law? What made me go to law school? Well, it seems like ages ago now. Um, my journey wasn't linear, and that's probably the same for many of your listeners and maybe even yourself, Rebecca. So I completed my commerce degree at Queen's way back in 2005. I almost became an accountant, an actuary, and a consultant. Law was always in the back of my mind. I debated in high school and went to the national finals. I really enjoyed a labor arbitration class at Queens where we did a mock arbitration. Essentially, I loved being on my feet and still do. While at Queens, I was working summers at CIBC doing research about insurance strategy. I know, it sounds really exciting. I wasn't ready to work full-time after graduation. I applied to law school and chose Western in London, Ontario. Uh, to be honest, I didn't want to live at home in Toronto, and Western gave me a small scholarship, so off I went. Yeah, that's great. It's it's um, good to hear that you you didn't have that sort of linear path, because I, I agree with you that a lot of our listeners don't have that, and I myself don't. I did a music degree before, so it's, it's always interesting to hear um, different varied backgrounds that people come from, because I think a lot of people who are considering law school sometimes think that they have to have certain degrees to do, to, to do law school, and that's just not true at all. So that's good to... Good to, to highlight that, I think. Definitely. So when did you become interested in human rights law? Was that a passion that developed in law school or was there something after law school that sparked that interest? So I summered an article at Hicks Morley, a large management side labor and employment law firm in Toronto. They represent employers like banks, school boards, police services, and large companies. I was interested in labor and employment law because it's about people and provides lots of opportunities to be on your feet and litigate. That was my number one priority. And Hicks Morley, that's where I really got exposed to human rights. I wrote a response on behalf of a police services board to a complaint filed with the Human Rights Tribunal of Ontario that alleged racial discrimination in policing, and I was hooked. So I finished articling at the height of the recession in 2009. I didn't get hired back. And to be honest, it was tough finding a job afterwards. I was unemployed for six months and I doubted myself. I treated 
but I treated my job search like a job. Uh, between nine and five, I'd be churning out applications, meeting lawyers for coffee, and going to interviews. I'll never forget what Professor Margaret Capes told me. And this is what she was our uh, professor in a social welfare advocacy class at Western Law. She said, regardless of where you end up when you leave Western, I know that you're all taking this class for a reason. And she was right. At the back of my mind, I've always wanted to help people. I saw a job posting in the Ontario Reports for a staff lawyer position at the African Canadian Legal Clinic, and I applied. I caught a break and got the job. The African Canadian Legal Clinic was a specialty legal clinic of Legal Aid Ontario that fought anti-Black racism through test case litigation, public legal education, intakes, and law reform activities. And I was hooked. I got to write a factum for the Whatcock case, a hate speech case, before the Supreme Court of Canada. And I was on the agenda with Steve Pakin all before I was 30. I've never looked back since and always make time to mentor students. After about two years, I made the move to the Ontario Human Rights Commission and broadened my human rights practice to include all grounds of discrimination under the Human Rights Code. I've been there ever since. So for our listeners who aren't familiar with the Ontario Human Rights Council or Commission, sorry, what do they what do they do? Can you describe broadly sort of their role and maybe more specifically what your role there is? Sure. So the commission is one of three pillars of the human rights system in Ontario. The other pillars are the Human Rights Tribunal of Ontario and the Human Rights Legal Support Center. All three are creatures of the Human Rights Code. And taking a few steps back, the the Ontario Human Rights Code, that's a provincial law that gives everybody equal rights and opportunities without discrimination in specific social areas like jobs, housing, services, facilities, and contracts. The commission is an arm's length agency of the provincial government. It's, it's independent. Its mission is to promote and enforce human rights, to engage in relationships that embody the principles of dignity and respect, and to create a culture of human rights compliance and accountability. It's largely concerned with addressing systemic discrimination, patterns of discrimination, discrimination that is institution-wide and affects many vulnerable people. So how does it do that? Well, it does that through policy development, public education, inquiries, and litigation. So the commission develops and issues policies that advance a progressive understanding of the rights under the Human Rights Code. So for example, we have a policy on eliminating racial profiling in law enforcement. We have a policy on accessible education. And what these policies do is they provide organizations, employers, service providers with uh, information about their responsibilities under the Human Rights Code, how to make sure they're not engaging in discrimination. And they help people uh, know their rights and how to spot the discrimination that they may be facing. And when those policies are before the Human Rights Tribunal of Ontario, they have to be considered by the tribunal. And those policies have also received deference or respect uh, in the courts. We deliver public education about rights under the Human Rights Code. So I've delivered public education to racialized youth about their right to be free from racial profiling. 
for example. Um, we also do inquiries and litigation. Right now, we're in the middle of our inquiry into racial profiling of black people by the Toronto Police Service. And we engage in litigation by intervening in cases before the Human Rights Tribunal of Ontario or initiating, initiating our own applications, our own complaints at the Human Rights Tribunal of Ontario. But we also intervene uh, in cases at the courts, court cases that affect lots of vulnerable people that will help shape human rights law in a significant way. So there are eight lawyers in the Legal Services and Inquiries Office of the Human Rights Commission. And our client is the chief commissioner and part-time commissioners. And they're all appointed by the provincial government. They're like our board of directors. The interim chief commissioner is Ina Chada, a huge human rights nerd, expert, and leader. As counsel, as a lawyer of the commission, I primarily work on the enforcement side of our mandate, the inquiries and litigation, but I also support the other functions. Sounds like it's a, a very, there's a very broad mandate then, and there's a lot of varied tasks that, that lawyers who work for the OHRC undertake. Um, could you give an example of a type of case that you've worked on recently? Sure, sure. So I talked about the commission, one of the ways that it litigates is by intervening at cases at the Human Rights Tribunal of Ontario. So when the complainant consents, when the applicant consents, the commission intervenes as a full party. So that means the commission can participate in all stages of the proceeding by calling evidence, cross-examining witnesses, making submissions, and engaging in mediation. So one of the cases I worked on recently was Al Turkey and Ontario. We intervened in the matter at the Human Rights Tribunal of Ontario, and I was co-counsel along with an amazing lawyer at the commission, Rima Kaja. The tribunal's decision came out last summer. It's a case about discrimination against refugees in the driver's licensing system in Ontario. So tell me, Rebecca, do you have your driver's license? I do, yes. Just got it, Just got it, okay. Do you have your G1, G2, or G? I have my G2. A G2, all right then. So it's about, um, it's about there's a waiting period between your G2 and your G, right? It's yes. About a, yeah, and about a year. Yeah. And so you generally need, it's great that you don't have a G yet, so we can really talk about <laughs> driver's licensing in Ontario. So you generally need a G license to pay, for example, lower insurance premiums or find a job in trucking or ride sharing or delivery. And those are common jobs for refugees that don't speak much English. So yes, there's a one-year waiting period between obtaining a G2 license and taking the road test to get your G license. And to waive that one-year period, the Ontario government's policy required that foreign licensed drivers from non-reciprocating countries, basically countries that aren't third world countries. Um, so the policy required that foreign licensed drivers from non-reciprocating jurisdictions obtain written authentication of their driving experience from their home country. They have to get a letter, basically, demonstrate from their home country, demonstrating that they have had a valid driver's license for two out of the last three years. So the applicant, Shiesh al-Turki, is a Syrian refugee in Ontario. He had a Syrian driver's license, but he couldn't get a letter from Syrian officials saying that his license has been valid for two out of the last three years 
for fear of persecution to him and his family. It meant he was on social assistance for a year when he could have found a job in trucking, ride-sharing, or delivery. So the commission intervened because it's the same story for other refugees. By definition, they have a well-founded fear of persecution. That's the definition of a convention refugee. Their families or friends could be harmed or killed. Or in war-torn countries, the ministries of transportation may no longer exist. So the commission intervened. We we called evidence, uh, for example, from an organization that serves refugees, the FCJ Refugee Center. Um, We called evidence about... Uh, an organization, the World Education Service, that looks into certifying uh, credentials from from people that aren't from Canada, their education credentials. And we, we, uh, so we made arguments that this policy discriminates against refugees, and the tribunal agreed. And they found that the policy discriminated against refugees based on place of origin, citizenship, and ethnic origin. The tribunal ordered the Ministry of Transportation to immediately stop requiring refugees to get state authentication of their driving experience and to develop and publicize a new non-discriminatory policy in accordance with the principles of the decision. So this is a huge win for refugees. It was amazing that, you know, cross-examining the government's witness from the Ministry of Transportation, you know, calling our own evidence, um, listening to Mr. Al-Turkey's story, making legal arguments. It was it was a, a great case, and it's a huge win for refugees in Ontario. Yeah, that's really great. It, it also kind of highlights something that I've always found really interesting about human rights law, in that there are so many things that just don't appear on their face to be discriminatory until you look deeper and you find those connections. So it's, it's really interesting to see that. Exactly. That's right. You just... You just said it. Ad, it's adverse effect discrimination. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I imagine that because of that, a lot of the cases you work on can be really emotionally tough and draining. And I'm, I'm wondering how you handle that personally. They are. They are. Uh, they are really tough and emotionally draining. But, you know, what I do is I'm just grateful for the privilege to be a human rights lawyer. It's, you know... Not many people are able have, have the means to go to law school, you know, and, and even fewer people are able to practice human rights law. And so I'm just so grateful for the privilege to be a human rights lawyer. And you know, other things that help me include just remembering that there's incremental change. You're not going to see exactly what you want right away. And so I just try to remember the incremental change that I've helped create through my work. Um, I vent with my colleagues, you know, just like how you probably vent with uh, your fellow law students. (laughs) And I enjoy time with my family and friends. When I come home, I see uh, my wife, Monica, and my daughters, Amaya and Samira. Amaya is three and a half and Samira is one and a half. And when I come home and see their smiling faces, I forget the tough parts of my job. So you mentioned earlier that you really loved being on your feet and that was something that was really important to you to have in a job and that you also wanted to help people. Um, and it, it seems that you've really been able to find that in your career. Um, so has has your career as a human rights lawyer been rewarding and has it fulfilled what you really envisioned and wanted out of a career? Mm-hmm. It's, it's deeply rewarding. 
And um, the best way that I can answer your question is by telling you what motivates me. Uh, in other words, why I fight for human rights. So I fight because I've learned from lived experiences of discrimination. My first client at the African K Legal Clinic was a black man who was driving home from work. He was taken down by gunpoint by the police in his own driveway. Two of my other first clients were a black mother and her son. He was tasered twice while handcuffed outside of a plaza next to his high school. It's stories like that, you know, and knowing that you want to do everything you can to make it better. It's that motivation. It's hearing stories like that that makes the work really rewarding. And I fight, I've mentioned this, because of my privilege. You know, I went to law school, became a lawyer, and took an oath to protect our rights and freedoms and ensure access to justice. That's the same oath that you're going to take, Rebecca, and that the, you know, your listeners, law students, will take when they're called to the bar. I fight so my children will use their voice. And I fight you know, particularly systemic racism in policing because black and indigenous people can't breathe in this, com in this country. And I fight because the fight isn't over. One of the things that's most rewarding is also the most challenging. That is test case litigation. It, and it makes the work really exciting. So, but it's also challenging. We're, we're always trying to push the envelope and to make novel arguments. None of my cases are the same, and there's no real clear path. And the stakes and the pressure are high. I feel like thousands of vulnerable people are counting on me. So it's, you know, it's a, it's a double-edged sword there, but this work is deeply rewarding. So you mentioned that your two sort of first cases dealt with um, Black individuals who had been subject to racial profiling with law enforcement. And that's something that has really been a huge focus in the last year. Um, and I think we've really been forced to face, face mm -hmm. these issues and to start to address them. I'm wondering if we could just rewind a tiny bit and if you could describe what the word or what the terms racial profiling and systemic racism mean and how those relate to law enforcement. Yeah, no problem. So last year, the, oh, now it's two years ago. I keep forgetting it's 2021. So um, in 2019, the commission released its policy on eliminating racial profiling in law enforcement. And it defines racial profiling as any act or omission related to actual or claimed reasons of safety, security, or public protection by an organization or individual in a position of authority that results in greater scrutiny, lesser scrutiny, or other negative treatment based on race, color, ethnic origin, ancestry, religion, place of origin, or related stereotypes. Let's break that down a bit. So there are some important parts of this definition. So the first is it can be by an organization. So that really recognizes that racial profiling is systemic, that it affects lots of vulnerable people and can be embedded in the fabric of organizations like police. And some other notable things about the definition. So it talks about 
lesser scrutiny or other negative treatment. And that gets at a concept called under-policing. And this is a real reality for Indigenous people in this country. Essentially, it means, you know, under-policing of Indigenous people, it means that Indigenous people are viewed as less worthy victims. That's what Jonathan Rudin said in a racial profiling case involving an Indigenous man uh, called McKay and Toronto Police Services Board. So they're viewed as less worthy victims. And where we really see that, you know, here is in racism and sexism in police investigations of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. And so that's, that's a really important part of the definition. In essence, you know, we've heard from the United Nations and we've heard from the inquiry into missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls, that, that indigenous people are viewed as less worthy victims and these crimes against them aren't investigated as thoroughly. So, for example, um, so I mentioned there are serious concerns about racism and sexism in police investigations of missing and murdered indigenous women and girls. So in 2015, for example, families of murdered indigenous women told the United Nations about a, quote, failure by the police to treat cases of missing Aboriginal women in an urgent manner and to carry out adequate investigations. Similarly, a Métis woman told the inquiry into missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls that, quote, when a crime happens, they aren't thorough with investigations. They assume it's just domestic violence from men in our community. It feels like our women are worth less than others. So it was really important for the commission to make sure that that under-policing is reflected in this definition. And, you know, we see, you know, we've heard about under-policing of Black people as well. Um, so if we think, you know, many, many years ago, for example, uh, in the U.S., uh, so here's what the American Civil Liberties Association has said, you know, any definition of racial profiling must include, in addition to racially or ethnically discriminatory acts, discriminatory omissions on the part of law enforcement. So if we think back to the eras of lynching in the South in the 19th and early 20th centuries and the civil rights movement in the 50s and 60s, Southern sheriffs sat idly by while racists like the KKK terrorized black people. And at times the sheriffs would even release black suspects to the lynch mobs. So we want to capture, we really wanted to capture um, we wanted to capture under policing. So those are some really important parts of the definition that it's systemic, that it includes under policing, but it includes, of course, the more traditional forms of racial profiling, you know, being stopped, questioned, searched, having force used against you, being arrested, uh, being charged unnecessarily because of your race. And definitions of systemic racism uh, for example, definitions of anti-Black racism reflect its systemic, na systemic nature. So when we talk about systemic racism, it's about, it's about things that are embedded in institutions, things that may be the result of policies or practices uh, or, uh, or, or training, things that are embedded. So it's about patterns. So that's really what it, that's really what it means. And what does this mean for Black Indigenous communities? 
Well, you know, un- unfortunately, in this country, um, you know, we've seen many Canadian court decisions and research studies that demonstrate that systemic racial discrimination in policing is a reality. Black and Indigenous people face racial profiling or systemic racism across the spectrum of police interactions, from stop and question activities to arrests and use of force. They're over-policed, and the effects are terrible. You know, that's why the commission called its first interim report and its inquiry into racial profiling of Black people by the Toronto Police Service. That's why it called it a collective impact, because of the damage that racial profiling can do not only to yourself physically and emotionally, uh, the victims, but to the victims' families and their entire communities. So there's the physical and emotional impact, but of course racial profiling contributes to the overrepresentation of Black and Indigenous people in our jails, something that's only gotten worse. So it's it seemed like when this issue did sort of blow up over the past year, um, the focus seemed to at least initially be in the U.S., but as you've clearly highlighted when you were talking about the missing and murdered Indigenous women and um, under-policing of Indigenous peoples, um, th- this is a problem that we have in Canada too. But at the same time, even even though I have heard about some of those things in the news before, it, it does seem like it's kind of remained a little bit invisible in the general public in Canada. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that is? You know, just before I answer your question, I just want to talk a little bit more about just how bad it is here. So, for example, Black and Indigenous people are grossly overrepresented in fatal encounters with police across the country. So, according to the CBC, there were 461 fatal encounters with police in Canada from 2000 to 2017. Black people were 9%, 43 of the victims, but less than 3% of Canada's population. Indigenous people were 15%, 69 of the victims, but less than 5% of Canada's population. We've seen protests erupt in America over the failure failure to directly charge officers for the death of Breonna Taylor. But here in Canada, none of the officers in cases involving Black and Indigenous deaths from 2000 to 2017 have been criminally convicted, none. So in my opinion, police services haven't been taking a hard look at these issues because the data wasn't being collected or analyzed or reported on. And so you can only address what's being measured. And now there's more uptake. I'm happy to see that. Um, Now police services are, some are starting to collect race-based data. I think quite honestly, it was a blind spot. I think it's easier for police to dismiss stories. But when you have data, you can't deny it. And when you have more video, when you have cell phone video or video from body-worn cameras, it can't be denied. So another problem, perhaps, is that maybe we as Canadians see ourselves as being more polite, that we don't act on racial stereotypes, you know, sunny days here north of the border. We feel we're a kinder nation. We don't feel it's a problem. But we know that the lived experiences of Black and Indigenous communities tell us otherwise. Maybe it's the media. Maybe that's why we're not acknowledging the problem enough. Um, You know, we see so much attention being paid now south of the border to anti-Black racism and policing, but we do not see that same attention here. So it could be a reflection of how Canadians, Canadians see themselves. 
And I'm hoping the project that I'm working on, the Hidden Racial Profiling Project, will help change those views. So part of your work at the OHRC recently has been on its inquiry into racial profiling of Black people and discrimination within the Toronto Police Services. Um, what sort of spurred that project? What made the OHRC start to pursue that? Mm-hmm. So the commission publicly launched the inquiry in 2017. But we know that there have been concerns about anti-Black racism and policing in Toronto for over four decades. So in 1988, for example, Lester Donaldson, a Black man diagnosed with schizophrenia, was shot and killed in his rooming house by a Toronto Police Service officer. The police said they were responding to a call of a man holding hostages, but found Mr. Donaldson alone in his room. He was shot for allegedly lunging at the officer with a knife. The officer was charged with manslaughter, but was later acquitted. The Black Action Defense Committee, one of the older organizations advocating for racial justice and fighting anti-Black racism in Toronto, it was formed in the wake of Mr. Donaldson's death. And 600 people demonstrated in front of 13 Division where the officer worked. And Mr. Donaldson's death contributed to the establishment of the Special Investigations Unit in 1990. That unit investigates and decides whether to lay criminal charges whenever there is serious injury or death or an allegation of sexual assault involving the police. So this has been around for ages. And what the commission wants to do, that what the goal is, and this is what our interim chief commissioner, Ina Chada, said at the launch of our second interim report, in August of 2020. She said the goal of the inquiry was, and still is, to build trust between the Toronto police and black communities, to empirically study the issues, to pinpoint the problem areas, and to make strong recommendations to address the roots of the problems. And that's what we're doing. So what has the commission found so far? The data that's been analyzed by the commission, it's disturbing. So with the assistance of... Dr. Wortley, a criminologist at the University of Toronto and a professor there, the commission found that between 2013 and 2017, a black person was nearly 20 times more likely than a white person to be involved in a fatal shooting by the Toronto Police Service, a significant racial disparity that's persisted from the early 2000s. We also found that when Toronto police officers shoot black people, they're more likely to die from their injuries. From 2000 to 2006, seven of 13 black shooting victims died from their injuries, compared to only one of nine white shooting victims. From 2013 to 2017, seven of nine black shooting victims died from their injuries, compared to only two of 10 white shooting victims. The commission's analysis of charge and arrest data also confirmed what black people have known for decades, that they bear a disproportionate burden of law enforcement. We looked at nine discretionary lower-level charges from 2013 to 2017. Black people represent 8.8% of Toronto's population, but almost a third of all those charges. White people were underrepresented. Black people and white people use cannabis at roughly the same rate, but black people represented almost 38% of people involved in cannabis charges. Only 20% of the nine, of the nine charges examined by the commission, regardless of race, resulted in conviction. However, charges against black people were more likely to be withdrawn and less likely to result in a conviction 
than those involving white people. So some really disturbing numbers. Do you feel like since this project has started, there has been some account, some more accountability or more response from the Toronto police? Oh, certainly. Um, you know, after the commission released its first interim report, a collective impact, and this was in December of 2018. Um, in September of 2019, the Toronto Police Services Board passed a groundbreaking policy uh, requiring that there be race-based data collection across the spectrum of police activities. Uh, in, in stops and questions and searches, charges, arrests, uh, force. So there has been, there certainly has been movement, you know, as I think the, the inquiry has contributed to that, certainly. That's good. Um, so you've also recently partnered, as I mentioned earlier, with Western Law School on sort of a similar project, the Hidden Racial Profiling Project, but it's more focused Canada-wide, is that correct, as opposed to Toronto? That's right, yeah. So how is it different, is it different, I guess, than the OHRC's inquiry in any other way, or is it very similar in, in nature? It's, it's different. It's looking at a, at a smaller issue. So it is Canada-wide, yes. And so what we're doing is we're identifying recent cases involving major municipal police forces across Canada and rights violations like arbitrary detentions, unreasonable searches, and excessive force. And what we're doing is we're contacting defense counsel and the victims to determine the race of the victims in these cases. You know, I think we're going to uncover many cases that involve Black or Indigenous victims that are consistent with racial profiling. And we're going to make those cases visible. That's the first goal of this project, to make invisible racial profiling visible and get the attention that it deserves. So a clear example to me is uh, the Queen and Bonds, for example, a 2010 decision of the Ontario Court of Justice. The Ontario Court of Justice concluded that Ottawa police officers violated the rights of Stacey Bonds. She was arrested for public intoxication in 2008, but the arrest was unlawful. She was not publicly intoxicated or a threat to herself or anyone else. She was taken to a holding cell at the police station and was strip searched by multiple officers, including a male officer who used scissors to cut off her bra. She was left half naked in the cell for over three hours and soiled her pants. The decision makes no mention of the fact that Ms. Bonds is black or the issue of racial profiling, but in my opinion is clearly consistent with racial profiling. And so we want to make those cases visible. And, you know, the second goal is to provide an applied research opportunity to law students interested in racial justice. So I want to inspire law students, hopefully. So when the project does finish, um, where would our listeners be able to find the results of the, the project? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I'm hoping to get the results published in a legal journal, but we're also exploring uh, other innovative ways to share the results. You know, I think this project is too important to be just left to a legal journal. So, you know, we're thinking about innovative ways to share the results and hopefully that will spur some change. So, you know, maybe you can have me on and I'll tell you where to find it, but you can also look on my Instagram, you know, I talk about the project on my Instagram. Yeah. Okay, so you, you also mentioned um, a few minutes ago 
that one of the goals was to get students involved who were interested in these issues. Is, is there a reason that you specifically chose Western law for this? And, and why was it so important for you to have students involved? Yeah, so I really wanted to provide law students with an applied research, you know, applied research opportunity. I think having real practical experiences is so important to law students. And why did I partner with Western Law? Well, I'm an alumni uh, there, um, but also I taught a class there, an intensive class there uh, in the 2019-2020 academic year. It was an intensive class on racial profiling and policing. And the students had so many insightful comments and thoughtful questions. So I thought, you know, given that talent, might as well go back to Western. That's great. So how can other students who are interested in these specific issues, but even just human rights in general, how can they get into the, the into this field? What kinds of things should they be doing or pursuing in law school that would best prepare them for that kind of career? Mm-hmm. So I want to really... Uh, sort of keep it real here. So there are few opportunities where you can practice human rights law exclusively and even fewer where you'll be able to make a decent salary, pay the rent and student debt and live comfortably. It's, it is a tough field to break into. So at the commission, we typically receive over 200 applications for one article spot. So it's, it's intensely competitive. You know, I think if I was applying now to be an articling student, if I was coming out of law school, I don't think I'd get the job, <laughs> to be honest. So, but here's some tips. You know, just generally, if law students are interested in human rights and want to explore it further. And so I'd say join student clubs or, or volunteer with community or advocacy groups that fight for human rights you know, like the Canadian Civil Liberties Association or the Law Union of Ontario, for example. Um, Talk to your professors who are involved in human rights research and try and get involved with their research. And this next one's important. Be flexible. Find opportunities to fight for human rights, even if it doesn't become your day job or if it doesn't become all of your day job. So, for example, you could work at a union-side labor and employment law firm so that some of your work will involve addressing discrimination in employment. And listen to lived experiences of discrimination. In my opinion, the best human rights lawyers have an ear to the ground and have empathy. Great. So that's all of the questions I have for you today. Thank you so much for coming on the show to speak with me. It's been a privilege and it's been very educational. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And thank you also to our listeners for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Law School Show. You've just been listening to The Law School Show. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and now on Spotify, or on our website at thelawschoolshow.com. If you liked what you heard, like us again on Facebook or follow us on Twitter for the latest updates. Human stories, new legal topics, and career-advancing advice right to your earbuds. Catch it all here, next time, on The Law School Show.